Welcome to Tax Justice Warriors, a podcast that celebrates the work of low-income taxpayer clinics and talks about issues related to tax news. I'm your host, Omid Faruzi, staff attorney at Philadelphia Legal Assistance Taxpayer Support Clinic. Hi, everybody. So I'm talking to you now here on Thursday, May 11th, when I'm recording this. And I just got back a few days ago from the ABA tax section May meeting, which was held in D.C., as the May meeting is held every year in D.C. And it was a good time, and I learned a lot, and we even heard from the IRS commissioner, which I'll get to in a little bit. And I had the chance to interview two people who have really become great mentors and colleagues, and that would be Les Book and Mandy Matlock. So I actually had Les Book as a professor at Villanova Law in 2018 when he taught me federal income tax. He also helped me greatly in getting the ABA tax section Brunswick Fellowship, where I started at PLA with that fellowship in 2018 to 2020. And uh, he has just continued to be a great mentor who I've relied on a lot. Mandy Matlock is somebody who I've consulted with on issues before. She has become someone who I've really valued as a colleague. She is someone that I also look up to, and she has provided great insight about so many issues related to tax and consumer litigation, and I wanted to talk to her as well, so I got the chance to sit down with her as well. And you're going to hear those two interviews in this podcast episode. I wanted to give a general overview too of the conference. So I had the opportunity to learn a lot at this conference, and I hope people will check out the slides if they have access to the meeting materials. So at first, you know, I went to the taxpayer, low income taxpayer representation workshop, that is, on the Thursday of the conference, and that was quite interesting. Really good presentations on moving towards a racially neutral tax system and also on the effects of AI. And this uh, information was just so interesting. I mean, we know that in terms of a racially neutral tax system and and that presentation that uh, we saw recently that black taxpayers are audited more and at higher rates. And this is something that the Biden administration has been looking into. They are addressing issues of racial equality. So I really, I don't want to just restate what was said there because I want people to go and check it out for themselves because it's so meaningful. But it was, but it was really interesting to see the charts there and details of, of how the impact is on different taxpayers. We also heard from uh, Nina Olson, among others, in terms of the effect of AI and an example from the Netherlands and a program the IRS used and, and kind of the pitfalls of that and how, you know, it, it could be subject to error that uh, you may not have thought of at first when thinking about computer systems. I learned a lot also in the next day about things like gambling in- income and how if you're in the profession of being a professional gambler, you can take expenses and standard deduction uh, I didn't fully know that to be honest and I learned a lot about like different ways of reporting and you know game by game and things like that so I encourage people to check out those slides learned a lot in the diversity session about some of the 
changes that are going to be made uh, through the Secure Act 2.0 in terms of increasing the savers credit, something that a lot of advocates have called for for a while to help people, encourage people to save more towards retirement. I learned in collections about issues related to the uh, IRS's uh, efforts to try and increase uh, enforcement in terms of even employment tax issues, which to me was interesting given that uh, we have seen before that the IRS SSA unit has not done a good job following through on employment tax enforcement. That's just something that the Treasury Inspector General for for Tax Administration has said because of underfunding over the years, but now there's been more funding, so we'll see what effect that has. And I asked Commissioner Werfel about this, and he you know, indicated it may be part of a larger priority of enforcement. And, of course, with regard to the pro bono and tax clinics uh, committee, you know, it was very, uh, very, very interesting to hear about kind of the challenges of representing ITIN holders, learned a lot there, learned a lot about challenges of representing incarcerated individuals, excuse me, and, uh, and, and, and so... You know, uh, those are all really important issues that uh, get to the core of tax justice. And, you know, you can see how there are there are barriers for for folks. Uh, you know, that's kind of a common theme amid all this, I would say, is that there have been a lot of kind of barriers and restrictions and administrative hurdles. If you have an I-10, if you are incarcerated, if you... Uh, even, you know, if, if you're just low income generally, um, black taxpayers getting audited more, uh, you have just, you know, a, 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 a example here, many examples of kind of, you know, you've got this string of these issues. It's kind of the connecting thread amid all this where low income taxpayers bear the brunt and have more hoops that they've had to jump through, whereas historically, You've had, at least in the recent history, wealthier taxpayers and big employers not having enforcement uh, come down on them as strongly. So I think that was a kind of a larger takeaway that I got. Whereas now, and this kind of gets to what Commissioner Werfel was saying and what the kind of the prospects are now, now that there is this additional funding and we have an administration, too, that has at least said that they want to focus on these issues of racial equality and they don't want to increase audits on people who make under $400,000 a year. There there would be a shift in focus here to, to go into a, a, a new direction uh, that is more tax justice oriented to get to the title of our podcast, that is. So we shall see what continues to happen here. Uh, we know that the filing season uh, was one that had uh, faster processing and, and, and more phone service than the last couple seasons. But the long-term impacts of the funding increase remain to be seen and whether there will be kind of a move towards increasing enforcement seriously against high net worth individuals who evade taxes and whether or not that is going to be the case that, in fact, they don't increase audit rates on people who make under 400 k So that is something that practitioners, I'm sure, will be 
studying and, and seeing what the effects of that will be. Now, I want to transition into introducing you all to my conversations that I had. So first up, uh, I will play here, we'll play a interview that I had with Professor Les Book. And then you will hear an interview that I had with Mandy Matlock, who also was a professor at Harvard for a semester uh, recently. And she talked about that experience, and Les talked about his experience as well, teaching, and they both talked about their experiences in practice. And so, with no further ado, here are those interviews. I'm here with Professor Les Book of Villanova Law School, who I had as a professor, actually, at Villanova. Thanks for joining us, Professor Book. Uh, it's great to be here, Omid. So, quickly, how did you get involved in tax? So, it, it all started for me back in, in law school a long time ago. Uh, I had a class with uh, Professor Joe Bankman at Stanford and a basic tax class and, and it opened the door to me or opened really my eyes to thinking about tax in a different way and um, what I, had, I thought of you know, going into the class as a dry subject I realized how central tax was to every facet of policy and that to me just really um, changed my perspective on, on the subject and I, I became interested in, in wanting to do and know more about tax. And I wound up taking a position at a, a law firm and was able to do some tax work at, at a law firm in a summer position. And then I started down the path of, of uh, initially being a lawyer at, at, a, at a large New York law firm doing tax work and eventually gravitated doing different things all connected to tax. And so, and it's from what I understand, you you worked at a couple of uh, different firms in uh, New York and London. It looks like from your CV, is that correct? I did, yeah, I started out at, at at Davis Polk, working in New York and London, doing mostly transactional work, and then I had um, decided to go get an LLM, and I was taking a tax procedure class with the late Mike, Michael Saltzman, who was a, a partner at Baker and McKenzie. And he uh, recruited me to come join him in his practice doing tax controversy work at, at Baker and McKenzie. So I, I wound up uh, working with, with Michael and, and other great practitioners at Baker and McKenzie. Having had great experience at Davis Polk as well, I've been fortunate in my career to work with some talented, uh, exceptional people, who many of whom served as and continue to serve as mentors. And you worked with Mr. Saltzman on Saltzman and Book I, I did. So um, I, I uh, unfortunately, Michael has uh, passed away. And, and but prior to his, his passing, uh, Michael and I had um, started to work together. And I was working on a revision to a chapter when Michael got sick, and um, and when he eventually passed away, um, I was fortunate enough to, to be able to be familiar with the, with the with the book, and and then. Uh, Thomson Reuters, the publisher of the treatise, asked me to stay on and be his successor. And so then you, of course, ultimately got involved in other publishing and academic world. So how did that transition happen? And how was that transition like? Yeah, so, so from practice to academics, it actually started at an ABA tax section meeting. Um, uh, in, 19, in the late 1990s, I heard the, the late Janet Spragans and Nina Olson give a talk about tax clinics. And at that time, I was an associate at, at Baker McKenzie doing tax controversy work and also doing a fair bit of pro bono work, but not tax related. I was doing special ed litigation, uh, you know, doing pro bono work, which the, the firm supported. 
But when I heard Nina and Janet Spragans talk about tax clinics, the light bulb went off. And for me, it seemed like a nice way to marriage my interest in public interest and tax litigation. So I began to explore the possibility of leaving private practice and go to work in a, um, in a tax clinic. And that led me to my first teaching job at Quinnipiac, where I directed the Quinnipiac's Low Income Taxpayer Clinic. And when you were there, it looks like you were there uh, in a very pivotal time when the LITC grant was formalized and established and the National Taxpayer Advocate Office came forward and uh, IRS Reform and Restructuring Act happened. So what was it like to be teaching and doing that all at the same time while that was happening? Yeah, it's, a, it's such a great question. I, I've been, and I, I look back at my career, I've been lucky in terms of timing. Mm-hmm. So starting the clinic or starting in the clinic at the time of the Restructuring Act and funding meant that there was an energy and attention around clinics that coincided with the start of my career. And, and it was a, um, an exciting time and a new time. Um, and so it, it really led me to be there at the, ver- at the you know, close to the beginning. You know, there were some pioneers who, who came before me, but, um, but I was able to kind of be there with some of the folks who were really instrumental in, in getting clinics off the ground. And, uh, and many of those people, like I was able to work with and learn a great deal from so that I, you know, the timing was just really uh, lucky for me, and also there was so much. Any time uh, when there's a major restructuring bill, as happened in, in 1998, there was a lot of opportunity as an academic to think about and write about issues that needed attention. So from a scholarship perspective, from a uh, writing perspective, the timing was really good for me as well. Now and uh, then, it seems like since 2000. You've more or less been at Villanova Law since then. So what drew you to Villanova? Yeah, so I, I, I loved my time at Quinnipiac, and, and one of the things that attracted me to Villanova was its long history of support for its, its tax clinic, including the commitment to having a, a faculty member be tenured or tenure track, and the support for writing and scholarship and, and a commitment to public interest that was, for me, a, a, a really important um, you know, drawing card, and, and Villanova had a very strong, and still does, have a very strong uh, tax um, faculty and tax program, and some amazing uh, alumni like yourself Thank who, you. <laughs> who've uh, gone on to do some really neat and interesting things. So the community uh, um, was strong, and, and, and being um, you know, in the Philadelphia area was, was a draw for me as well. Um, so it's, it's, been a, it's been a lovely place to to make an academic home, and that's where, as you've noted, I've been most of my time since since 2000, although doing different things. And I know you did a brief professor-in-residence stint uh, spring of 2019 at TAS, so can you describe quickly what that work was about? Yeah, that was really a, a, an, an amazing opportunity for me. At, at the time, um, I, I it was really, um, I, I was going into it with the expectation that it would be more of a... Um, an opportunity to observe and, and participate in some projects. Uh, it turned out when we got there, it coincided with, at the time, the, the National Taxpayer Advocate Nina Olson's decision to retire. And one of the things that she'd wanted to do before leaving was write a, an extensive um, report on the earned income tax credit and uh, drawing on the years of, of work that she had done previously. And she'd asked me, uh, with Margot Crandall Hollick, who, um, who was on detail from Congressional Research Service to lead up that effort. And so one of the things we were able to do was write a comprehensive report to Congress discussing um, some of the, the main issues with administering refundable credits 
as well as presenting some proposals to potential ref potential reform. Um, and that became the most significant project that I worked on when I was at, at TAS. Well, and so that gets to my last question, actually, which is, <clears throat> so that involved some advocacy, of course, in terms of refundable credits. And I know you did advocacy litigation in terms of uh, assisting undocumented folks, mixed status families. Is there any advocacy that you're focused on right now or any issue in particular that you are concerned about that you're looking to get more involved in litigating, possibly? Yes. Yeah, so so I, I, one of the things I've tried to do is since I've left, as you've noted, I left the day-to-day the, the -day work of the clinic. Um, in, um, I've, I've had the opportunity to be involved in, in some impact litigation, which, um, and that uh, especially was important, I felt, in, in, at the time of, of COVID relief when some of the legislation was, in my opinion, um, improperly denying benefits to U.S. citizen children of mixed status parents. Um, and that was a significant uh, project, and, and I, I still am, am involved, um, uh, although right now not directly involved in, in direct litigation, although it was still working on amicus matters. Uh, in fact, you know, a, an issue um, that I'm, I'm engaged in is, is around issues that I know that are near and dear to you around math error authority mm -hmm. and, and the, the ability for taxpayers to challenge uh, positions that the IRS has taken, even though in the absence of, of a notice of deficiency, which I know is an issue that is near and dear to your yeah. heart. But there are so many other issues that, that I, I'm, I'm fortunate to be involved with. Um, I'm also working with the Center for Taxpayer Rights, which has been very active in the amicus space, and that is where I've been spending a lot of time lately. Wonderful. Well, Professor Book, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. So I'm sitting here with Mandy Matlock, my colleague from Texas. Rio Grande Legal Aid. Mandy, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. And we're here at the ABA conference, the ABA tax section conference in Washington, D.C. It just wrapped up. We just heard from the IRS commissioner. So first off, what were your thoughts on what we heard from Commissioner Werfel today? Oh, well, I mean, he uh, sounds like uh, he's got the right idea about um, spending the money that Congress has entrusted with him and I like that he spent a lot of time uh, and I think as we all do and we have heard a lot of at the conference spend a lot of time talking about how the operating budget shouldn't be slashed just because the IRA funds are on hand um, I thought it was a good conversation between he and Natasha Saren and have you seen yet in your office the impact of the additional funding because I can say from my own experience that we've gotten people on the phone a lot quicker and we've gotten responses to correspondence a lot faster than we had been getting before. Interesting. So yes, the phone service, level of phone service has been stunning. I mean, really nothing short of stunning. Mm -hmm. You, um, I, the phone starts ringing, I mean, before you dial the number to practitioner priority services anymore you must have everything in front of you i used to dial before i even had my case open right um right it, within seconds you're having to to write down the name the badge number of the person you're speaking with right the the phone service is is is, is remarkable but i wonder to what extent that's taken people away from the correspondence processing because i haven't seen any increase in the level of service and correspondence processing, it's been the same. So I'm, I'm be interested to hear more about your experience, maybe not when we're on a podcast. <laughs> well, I mean, hopefully it gets even better for everybody uh, because that is going to be good for taxpayers and 
for practitioners as well. Mm-hmm. And so one thing, uh, speaking of practitioners, is wanted to start off with asking you how you got into tax, basically. Uh, well, um, I think like many of us, I'm an accidental tax lawyer. I was on fire for social justice, and when I left uh, law school, I, um, I only looked at social justice type jobs. I was only looking in legal services. That's where I wanted to be. And um, the at that time, our, my program was called Legal Aid of Central Texas, and they had an Equal Justice Fellowship Works, an Equal Justice Works Fellowship that they had applied for that was sort of vaguely written. Someone else had written the proposal, and they had been granted the proposal, and they were looking for their candidate. And it was vaguely structured around consumer and tax. And they were interested in the earned income credit and how to keep more of those dollars in, in the consumer's pocket. At that time, we talked about consumers. And of course, as I've morphed into a tax lawyer, I talk about taxpayers. Mm-hmm. And you uh, ultimately, uh, I see from your LinkedIn that you started at Texas uh, Rio Grande Legal Aid in 2001. Is that correct? That's right. I started my Equal Justice Works Fellowship in 2001. It was a two-year fellowship. and. Um, I um, was housed at Legal Aid of Central Texas, which merged with Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid shortly after. And while you were at uh, Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid, uh, you worked on consumer rights issues. Or I know you, you're still there, but when you when in when you were working there previously, mm-hmm. uh, I understand you worked on some consumer rights litigation. Can you describe like what specifically you worked on in the consumer law realm and if it ever intersected with tax specifically in any interesting ways? Well, I mean, my fellowship proposal required me to work on EITC issues. So I started out, um, they didn't have a consumer team at that time or they were, had very little consumer litigation happening. So I started out just taking consumer cases, which meant you know, in, you know mortgage foreclosure, um, auto fraud, uh, any kind of consumer fraud that might be happening. Um, trying to think what other types of uh, cases I worked on, but it was it was a really really wide array of cases. And at the same time, um, I was trying to figure out how to bring tax into it. So I started a Vita site, which is kind of where I. Um, the idea was to to help people not have to go to paid tax preparers. And early on, I think I sued H&R Block. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was a a really long time ago. Um, But it was really funny because we were in this little, uh, this terrible falling apart little building. And, um, you know, they they brought other lawyers from another city. And I looked like I was probably 12 at the time. (laughs) And we're sitting around the conference table with all these big guys in suits. Um, That was my first year of practice. (laughs) And you, you know, how I first got to know you actually uh, was when you were of counsel at uh, NCLC, National Consumer Law Center. That's when I started as an attorney in 2018. And I noticed from that work that you did that you were in national publications. I would be reading Huffington Post articles and say, oh, Mandy Madlock, I know her from the Lister. <laughs> so can you describe the work you did there and what it was like to be at NCLC? Well, um, so I was part-time of counsel to NCLC, and it was a long road from those first years with my Consumer Rights Fellowship uh, to NCLC. In the intervening years, I 
had uh, joined a boutique tax firm in Austin where I was representing a different kind of taxpayer than the taxpayers I was representing at the LITC. I was part-time uh, at, at the LITC. We had gone through some budgeting issues and I made the decision to go part-time. And then that gave me the opportunity to work part-time at a boutique tax firm and get some good experience there. And um, the, uh, the NCLC was working on some tax issues and they had a long history of uh, taking a hard look at the return preparer industry and to a lesser extent the private debt collection uh, of federal taxes. And um, I just got involved in so many uh, projects with um, Chi Chi Wu, who was the, the, the I say analyst, as the employee or the attorney at the National Consumer Law Center who had tax in her portfolio. And um, we worked together here and there on this, that, and the other. And one day I just said, you know, y'all should hire me because I'm, I'm always talking to you. I'm always on the phone with you. And so that's how that happened. Oh, my God. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> right. So um, we did, we worked on tax time products reports. So issuing some reports, um, taking a hard look at what the financial services industry was doing and what their role was in tax preparation and how they were uh, siphoning off these um, benefits that were intended for low-income taxpayers and the types of uh, schemes and scams uh, involved there. So um, we did some of that. We did a little bit of um, lobbying, did some work around uh, the private debt collection bill and, um, you know, memory, I can't really recall everything we worked on, but there was a lot of uh, talking with congressional staffers about proposed language for bills, um, talking to um, various actors in the industry who wanted to hear from the National Consumer Law Center what their perspective would be on certain policy initiatives and things like that. And then uh, my understanding is you were at TAS for a period yes. of time? Yes, I have uh, worn many hats over time. Um, my first love has always been legal aid and low-income tax practice and the actual work of working with low-income taxpayers on their administrative uh, tax issues and suing the IRS. I love to say that's my, you know, that's my favorite part of my job. Um, but I was chugging along part-time at Legal Aid, and by this time I was working fully half-time for uh, NCLC and um, the other half-time at Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid. And um, the position of local taxpayer advocate in the Austin office had been vacant for a long time. It really impacted our practice, actually, at the low-income taxpayer clinic, not having leadership in that Austin, in that Austin office. And um, they hadn't filled the position. It had been such a, it had been open for a couple of years. And um, I honestly don't even remember where, I, I don't know if, uh, I think someone from TAS reached out to, I can't remember, but I applied for the position. Mm -hmm. And I thought that I would be able to have a different kind of impact from the inside. And so that's what motivated me. So I was there for two years as the local taxpayer advocate in Austin. And uh, then in terms of all the hats that you wore, uh, you ultimately uh, spent a semester at Harvard as the director of the Federal Tax Clinic there uh, and lecture on law. Um, 
was that your first experience in uh, supervising students and teaching students? And uh, generally, what was that like? How what was that experience like? Well, I have always worked with students. I have the the good fortune to be practicing law in a town with the University of Texas at Austin. And so that's a really good pipeline for student interns. And so I've always had one or two students working with me. Um, and, and I've always enjoyed that. I enjoy mentoring them. I enjoy teaching them. I enjoy uh, sharing my passion for tax justice and um, for making things right for low-income taxpayers. And so that was a piece of my job that I really loved. And fast forward to, I guess, the uh, summer, bef- the summer two summers ago, um, Keith Fogg called me up and asked me would I be willing to uh, come up and, and step in. You know, the, the uh, presumptive new director was taking some leave and Keith was leaving and they had a gap they needed to fill. And no, I had never taught uh, students before, but I have always taught CLE. And um, so I wasn't daunted really by, by the idea of the teaching. Um, Moving away from home for a few months was a big obstacle, I'm but sure. um, yeah. and I had a job, right? right. I, <laughs> I had an employer. Um, I was a full-time attorney for our low-income taxpayer clinic at Trala, and so um, that took some uh, negotiating and some finesse, um, but it was a fantastic opportunity that I did not want to pass up. Well, and now... With all this experience that you've gained and, and have and the work that you continue to do, what are what issue or issues do you see as being at the forefront of the consumer and tax litigation intersection right now? I know you've done work in writing in terms of <clears throat> dealing with tax return preparers and refund anticipation loans uh, and, and that whole industry. Don't forget about private debt collectors. Yes, that's, that's right. That's a big one. Yes. So, so are, are those some of the issues you're continuing to focus on, or what are, what are some of the biggest issues that you see in this realm of consumer and tax right now? Well, I think the number one issue has to be paid tax preparation. I think that is at the intersection, when I think about what are all, there are a lot of issues at the intersection of consumer and tax, but the, but the, the, the elephant in the room is the abusive regime that is in place that allows private industry to uh, reduce, delay, uh, dissipate, steal, um, access, uh, consumers and taxpayers tax refunds and social uh, social safety net all their benefits and also their data mm-hmm. their data so um, I think that's the biggest issue and I and we are working um, we I say we me and you know other people who care about this are um, very interested in trying to make some inroads into um, on several different fronts um, getting some regulatory eyes mm-hmm. on some of these products that are offered. Yeah. That's one, one piece of it. Um, getting some alternative options for taxpayers, such as an IRS-sponsored e-filing option. Um, you know, there are a lot of different ways to approach the problem, and I think we have to approach, them, approach it on all fronts. And um, in an ideal world, 
Uh, I mean, how would you feel uh, as a as a citizen if you found out that in order to apply for some benefit you're eligible for, I don't know, um, yeah. if you had to, I, you know, how would it, let's see. Well, let's talk about our clients' other issues. For example, if they need food stamps, if the state of Texas set up a system where a food stamps applicant had to pay three hundred dollars to someone to submit their application for them, that kind of um, you know, why is it acceptable in the tax context when when no one would find it acceptable in the, in the context of any other social service that's being distributed? Right. 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 Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Mandy. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Tax Justice Warriors. You can visit our website at taxjusticewarriors.com. Please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. The views expressed on this podcast are not official opinions of the IRS, the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic Program, or the employers or people who spoke on this program. Your tax situation is unique, so do not take the statements on this program as legal advice. Consult with your tax professional if you seek specific advice. There are now three things that are certain in life, death, taxes, and your subscription to the Tax Justice Warriors podcast.